Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I want to tell you a story about an American. This American has watched the neighborhood and the town around them change over the past 20 years. And they're not happy about it. They've watched new people, weird, different people move in. They've watched new houses being built to house those people. These new people that move in, they have different customs. They look different. Sometimes they talk different. They like different food. Different kinds of restaurants are popping up. Listen to weird music that our American didn't grow up listening to. They have different tastes. They like different sports. They're kind of irritating. Because they're so different. They don't respect local customs. They don't respect the way things have been done since as long as this American can remember in this town. They're here for economic reasons. They moved looking for economic opportunity. But they're currently clashing with the locals. The surge In construction and the surge in new people has led to strains on public services. It's led to strains in schools. It's increased traffic. It's made it much harder to get around. Old restaurants that used to thrive have shut down and new ones have come back in their place. But the old gems that defined this area, they can never be replaced. The town is changing. And it's going through some serious growing pains. And this American who's watching this all unfold is unhappy about it. They're unhappy with the people that are moving to their town. They don't understand why here. Why can't you just stay where you were? Why do you have to come to my town? Why do you have to screw everything up? Why? Are housing prices going up for me? Why is my rent going up just because you want to live here? Why are there so many cranes? Why do I have to sit longer in traffic? Why do I have to put up with your weird music? Why don't your kids think about the world in the same way that mine do? 
Now, I want you to think about this American who's really frustrated about the change that's going on around them. And I want you to think deep about who this person is. Imagine their political party. Imagine what they look like, the color of their skin, their gender, their age. Imagine what they care about, what their values are. And do those values match yours? Now, I want, now that you've thought about that, I want you to come on a bit of a wild ride with me because I'm talking about two very different Americans. Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I'm Eric, your host, at least for now. And these... The story that I just told you about, my hope, if I've done it right, and I've, I've experimented on this with some friends where I've gotten what I want out of it, and I will reveal what I want out of it in a moment, but my hope is that you've imagined one particular kind of American, and you either agree with them or you don't. So, but, th- but there are, in fact, two different kinds of Americans that in my uh, little experiments here, friends of mine have imagined. And I'll just tell you who they are. One group of friends or once one group of these friends that I talked to imagined people living in a big city that have been living there for a long time. And what they're experiencing going on around them is gentrification. So most of the people moving in to this area are white, middle class, upwardly mobile, often Asian, upwardly mobile, could be immigrants, but tend to be, uh, you know, tend to be immigrants who speak good English. You know, he can come from some like wealthy areas, often India or, or the college educated, right? Gentrification, you know, so you've got gentrification, which is, you know, leading to increases in rent. It's leading to, you know, like weird people with weird, like these weird people with weird customs are, are other Americans, um, but they, you know, they don't respect like the way things have always been done in Oakland or in Boston or in Boise or in Austin or Nashville or um, any number of places that's experiencing what we think of as gentrification. It's change from a lot of people moving for an economic opportunity. And one chunk of you were just surprised by this because you were probably thinking about immigration, right? And that the American in our story is, uh, you know, it's a small town. Right. Maybe along in the south, along the border. And what they're experiencing is a change as um, immigrants often from Latin America move into their town and uh, they speak actually different languages and they tend to have different skin color. But not always. A lot of southern United States is not particularly white, you know, already is, is quite Hispanic or Latino, but that these folks moving in uh, are from another country. And so it's someone who's frustrated with the immigration that's going on around them. And the reason I bring up this story about this American and these changes going on around this American is that the stories of what people are experiencing with gentrification and immigration are actually quite similar. And I I came across the depth of the similarities when I was talking to a friend who was really frustrated with gentrification going on around them. But had also, but is also a proponent of much higher levels of immigration into the United States, and and uh, you know, and advocates for a higher welcoming of immigrants in the United States. 
And um, and and with this friend, I was trying to tease out what the fundamental difference was. Right. What's the fundamental difference between um, gentrification and immigration other than, you know, what we're calling gentrification tends to be people moving to your town who already lived in your country. And immigration doesn't for some reason isn't gentrification, maybe because immigrants tend not to have as much money when they're moving to a town as as the folks who are moving into, a, you know, obviously a place like the Bay Area where I live now. You know, you either have money or you're you're moving to make quite a bit of money, like more than the average American, which is in part why I moved. Right. I was an economic opportunity seeker. Uh, I moved across the continent in order to pursue an economic opportunity, much like many or almost all immigrants to the United States have moved across a continent or an ocean. With an economic opportunity in mind, with a hope to better them themselves. Right. And that means what does economic opportunity mean? It means make more money. And as we got further and further into it, we realized as we were talking about it, there's you really can't find a good way of talking about immigration and what I'm going to keep calling gentrification, even though it has this bad negative connotation associated with it. You know, I think the people that are are, you know, let's let's talk about like what do people dislike about each of these? Well, the people who dislike immigration, you know, folks coming from the outside of the country, you know, they, they worry that they have these different customs and they speak a different language and, you know, and that that it's going to be very hard to culturally integrate them. Well, one thing I have at least come to understand is that, you know, folks who have lived in Oakland or San Francisco for a long time really don't think that the tech community is integrating well into, you know, the, this this culture, which was very much not a tech Silicon Valley kind of culture. But you have a lot of folks that are moving in, moving into high rise apartments, paying sometimes four or five thousand dollars a month to live there, getting paid well into the six digits from Google, have a very different set of priorities, very different outlook on life from the folks who originally grew up in San Francisco and Oakland. Right. They're having trouble integrating culturally, which is usually the argument against Immigration, right? More immigration is that they'll be bad at integrating. But it does seem that the frustration about gentrification isn't just, you know, isn't just a frustration at the kind of like greater problem of it's hard for supply of housing to keep up with demand for housing when people migrate in large numbers and therefore there's economic disruption, right? That's a systemic problem that people can be frustrated at, but people, locals, we'll call them, are frustrated at the gentrifiers, the people who are moving in. They don't want these people to move in and they don't like them often, right? We're stereotyping a little bit here. And so the things that people, you know, if someone says, well, immigration is different because as far as I can tell, the things that people think are different about immigration and bad versus gentrification are not different, right? These cultural, in, these integration issues and this cultural disruption that we tend to think of as happening with large-scale immigration, which, which we know happens with large-scale immigration in a lot of places, like, you know, France, Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland, having a lot of trouble integrating peoples from the Middle East and Africa, right? As we know from, like, banning niqabs and banning minarets, um, and just the, you know, just the, we just need to read the news, right? And we see that 
integrating people from outside of your country can be very difficult. But in a country the size of the United States, right, 360 some odd million people, basically a continent, right, kind of like a lot of countries smashed together, you know, Eric moving from Massachusetts to Bay Area, California, well, it's a little like moving countries. It's a little bit less difficult, but not so much more difficult than moving across the EU, certainly. And so the cultural gap may not be as big, but it's still there. And I do know there are people who resent the fact that I've moved here, right? Think I shouldn't have moved. But and now let's talk about what's fundamentally different about, uh, you know, what, what are people who are pro-immigration and anti-gentrification? How do they feel? Well, they say, well, gentrification is different because it's rich people moving and they're driving up prices. So they're they're forcing people out of their homes. Well, one, uh, let's look at rent, right? Real estate is the, the value of real estate, whatever it is in a given area, right? So whether we're picking a big city like San Francisco or New York, where the price of real estate was relatively higher or a small town in southern Texas or uh, southern Arizona or New Mexico or Florida, something like that, where the rent was comparatively low. If you double the number of people that are showing up and you can't build a whole lot of housing in response, the rent is going to go up by quite a lot. And it's going to be a shock to the people that live there, whether we're talking about numbers like suddenly it's fifteen hundred dollars a month to rent a house in a small town in Texas or it's five thousand a month to rent an apartment in San Francisco. These are relative to each other, but it was already more expensive to live in you know, San Francisco than it was to live in this small town in Texas. And so whether it's a bunch of, you know, like Latin Americans moving to, you know, a border town in Texas, or it's, you know, a bunch of folks from the Balkans moving to the North Shore in Massachusetts, which happened, or whether it's a bunch of folks from, you know, China moving in during, you know, during a bunch of folks fleeing the communist regime in the 1950s. Or whether it's a bunch of tech bros from around the country who are moving in because they studied software engineering and they saw an economic opportunity for themselves. Like whatever the group of people, if it's a large group moving into a concentrated area of real estate, of geography, and you can't build all that fast to keep up, well, prices are going to go up, right? Regardless of where they came from and regardless of the sort of magnitude of economic opportunity that we're talking about. And that gets us to our second point about um, immigrant, you know, about the wealth of immigrants versus um, gentrifiers. Right. And the thing is, ultimately, a lot of folks that, you know, like the most of the folks that immigrate to the United States are not what we would call economic refugees. Most of the folks that happen to be trying to cross the border without documentation. Right. People who are are what we're calling illegally immigrating into the United States, right? They're, they're not doing it through legal means um, or not planning to do it through legal means or, or they're seeking um, asylum or refugee status, which is a, which is a legal means that doesn't include, you know, your normal, your normal getting a visa and, and whatnot. But those folks, you know, the, there, there is a group of people that are economic refugees, but most immigrants to the United States are not economic refugees. Most immigrants all over the world are not economic refugees. What they are is people who are, you know, who, who have a situation and they're seeking an improved situation. And a lot of immigrants that come to the United States are well-educated, right? They have STEM degrees. They're looking for six-digit jobs. 
right? They're moving to places such as New York and Boston and San Francisco and Oakland and Austin and Boise and Chicago. They just didn't happen to come from inside the United States, right? They're moving to places um, that they can also get software jobs because it turns out you can study software engineering, you can study business, you can study bio, bioengineering, mechanical engineering, all these jobs that pay well. You can study those outside of the United States or, you know, you can come to the U.S. and go to school here and try to get a job here as well. And so a lot of the gentrifiers, as we'll call them, are immigrants as well. And a lot of the immigrants are, you know, hoping to come to the United States to make more than your sort of average, you know, average sort of small town, you know, small town, only finished high school person who's who's got a retail job or something like that. Right. The reason I'm bringing this up is is I think the folks who are or say, you know, who, who find themselves to be very pro immigration for some reason and very anti gentrification believe that there's like somehow like kind of fundamentally a class difference, right? That, that the gentrifiers they're moving at their leisure in order to make more money than they need or something like that. And that the immigrants are uh, refugees. They're desperate. Right. And um, but, but really with the exception of the, again, group of people who are like truly refugees, most people are moving in order to pursue economic opportunity, in order to make more money with a job that's available in a place. That's why people move most of the time is to go make more money, whether they're coming from outside the United States or inside the United States. So the more we kind of break this down, the more we see that this immigration, you know, immigration, which some people love and some people hate and gentrification, which some people are fine with and some people really hate. They're the same thing. They're the exact same thing in terms of the drivers behind them in terms of the impact on the people um, on the ground, right. Who, who lived there before these people showed up. And, um, and so why, you know, why would you oppose one and support the other? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment. Every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, the answer's obvious, isn't it? It's because there's a culture war going on. And this culture war has way more to do with optics, um, signaling, right? And other kind of like fetishes around, around this idea of what America is supposed to be than any reality of what's actually going on, right? You have a group of people that are like, ah, oh, I'm supposed to like immigrants. Immigrants are good. They tend to be people of color. Ooh, there's you get some you get some progressive points there for them being people of color. You know, Republicans used to be all for immigration and Democrats used to be pretty against it in, in polls because immigration was bad for the American worker and good for business. Right. So 
you know, is a way that I, I mean, I, I remember hearing back in my more libertarian days, I remember hearing good left wing liberal people saying um, that, you know, expanding the H1B system was just it just helped corporations increase their profits at the expense of the American worker because you could get people from overseas that are willing to do the same work for less money. Have you heard that argument recently? And who have you heard it from? Right. It's not so popular among the left anymore because those people from overseas, if they're not European, they tend to not be white. Right. And then similarly. And so why is the right wing suddenly against immigration? It's also part of the culture war that they're, you know, because the right wing is so interested or obsessed with this idea that like there was a things with you know way things were in America. Right. And that they somehow didn't change until recently, um, which is crazy. Right. Obviously wrong, because the United States has always had large numbers of immigrants, except in the 60s and 70s, for a reason I I don't quite yet know, but I'm sure I can find out. But immigration has always been a major factor in the United States. Right. New York, the greatest city on Earth, was built by a bunch of immigrants um, who showed up and, you know, were they gentrifiers? Maybe not, because most of them came over with like kind of one of those like only their suitcase and like five dollars in their pocket sort of deal. Um, but who boy, did they make real estate in New York more expensive for whoever was living there? You know, but but there's this idea that like outsiders and liberals don't understand real American values or something. And, you know, what conservatives want to do is try to preserve those real American values, maybe Protestant Christianity, maybe an outdoorsy attitude, uh, maybe guns and pickup trucks. I don't know. You know, but it's but it's become culturally fashionable. If you're on the left to support immigration and if you're on the right to oppose it and then similarly gentrification, um, you know, we're, we're just willing to be totally, you know, willing to be totally hypocritical about it because we don't want to think too hard about it because, you know, gentrification hurts poor people somehow, uh, even though immigration, again, has the exact same economic impacts on the places that that it's happening. Right. Just supply and demand for real estate. Uh, that's what impacts rental prices. There is literally nothing else. So, you know, gentrification is bad because it hurts poor folks and causes rent to go up in places where people were. But but it's we're OK with this if it's immigrants doing it, if we're on the left and if we're on the right, we we don't want to see, you know, we don't want to see thing. You know, we don't want to see this this like kind of cultural disruption uh, unless it's, you know, it, and unless it's like kind of the um, this gentrification path, which I, you know, as far as I can tell, the right is fine with it because the, specifically because the left is not. It is funny how we end up on opposite sides of something so quickly. As soon as we find out that one side supports something, we have to oppose it a little like how we flip flopped on immigration, how we flip flopped on free trade somewhere between 2008 and 2016. So, you know, if we stereotype these folks, you know, the folks who are against immigration, let's say, who are they? Well, they're they're backwards. They're right wing. They're probably super racist, right? Because why else would you oppose immigration to your town um, or to your country? You know, they're, they're backwards and hang on to this this outmoded, also racist idea of America. That's our stereotype of them, right? They're just they're just they're not that bright and they're bad people for opposing immigration. And, uh, you know, if we stereotype the opponents of gentrification a bit, you know, what are they? They're I mean, also backwards, not racist, but um, they're opposing, uh, you know, they're they're against economic progress and opportunity and you know, and they're just they're also attached to this. I you know, they're they're kind of attached to this crazy idea that nothing should ever change um, because it is a little, you know, 
it's a little mad to imagine that things are just going to stay the same, right? That, uh, that you wouldn't want things to change, that you wouldn't want the economic makeup of a city to evolve with technology and time that you never, you know, don't want a city to grow. Now, of course, someone may say, well, I want it ha- to happen, but I want it to happen slower. Okay. Um, how could you, you know, could you possibly control that? And, and I think one of the reasons people are so mad about something like gentrification is it's harder to control the flow of people moving within a country than, um, than from outside. But much like your native gentrifiers, uh, once your immigrants get in the country, they can bloody live wherever they want. So they're going to congregate places as well. And they'll drive the real estate up there. So, uh, you know, it might be the case that people have a legitimate concern about the economic disruption and cultural disruption that occurs from too many people moving too fast into too small an area for, uh, you know, for the economic systems and the public, you know, the public infrastructure systems and the cultural systems to be able to keep up. Right. That seems like a legitimate concern. But why is one of them more of a priority, more of a problem than another? Why is one of them good? Why is one of them bad? That's where things get a little bit silly. And it's also what keeps us from being able to solve the problem. Because if we are just mad about this vague notion of gentrification, and and if our solution is that it should stop, well, we're not going to make any progress because you can't legally stop people from moving. You just can't. Right. In some ways, still a bloody free country. And then if you don't like immigration or something like that, like, what are you going to do? Stop people from moving here? Right. Or, you know, if people come over here to get an education from an Ivy League school or a great tech school or something, you just kick them back out. That's kind of what we already do. But this idea that like things just kind of have to stay the same and that we somehow have to like try to control others. And if we don't control them, Right. Then like, you know, then then fundamentally change is bad and and maybe they're even bad people. Right. Like the immigrants that want to come here, like the illegal immigrants, they're criminals because they want to come here. Um, even if they don't fill out the paperwork, this like makes them bad people somehow or similarly with the gentrifiers. Right. Like how dare someone move move to the Bay Area to get a job at Google. Right. And better themselves, you know, or or you know, put their software engineering degree that they've worked hard for to work for them. You know, they somehow don't have the right to live here because they weren't originally born here. That sounds kind of bigoted, right? Sounds a little backwards. Um, it just depends how big a circle you draw around here. Is the here America or is the here Oakland? Which here are we talking about that the people from not here are not allowed to be a part of? It's just a matter of the culture war, what circle you want to draw. But it's all just as silly, isn't it? And so the reason I loved this example of gentrification versus immigration so much is that I think we can actually really clearly, if we sit down and, and, and try to understand where we're coming from and like not where we're coming from in our minds, but like but our emotional responses, like why do we have an emotional response to one of these words that's so different from an emotional response to another, or maybe we don't, right? Maybe, maybe you're listening, you're saying, Hey, look, I just think it's all abstract economic forces. Right. And, uh, you know, if you ask, if you ask me, Eric Fogg, um, what do I think we should do? We should make it easy to build housing. Right. And, and, uh, uh, some of the local entrenched interests 
typically real estate owners in large amounts or or otherwise kind of like landed interests in a town um, that love having zoning laws and making it hard to build stuff. Well, you know, they're going to help limit the supply and keep the keep the prices high. Um, good for them, right? Because they get to charge outrageous rents. But the but if we just, you know, so I just think, you know, so I, I look at this and I think abstract economic forces and and regulation that that impacts impacts this. But if we have an emotional response to one of these words and not another, you know, um, why is that? Right. What's really driving it? How much of it is sensible policy? How much of it is like what we really care about and how much of it is our devotion to the culture war? There are some similar stories like this, some conversations I've had recently. So one of them is about violent disobedience, right? And when it's legitimate and when it's not. So, for example, I know some conservatives who were outraged at the Portland protests, right? And, and they became riots. Like, let's be very clear. Like, people were setting stuff on fire. That's a riot, right? In New York, sometimes it became a riot. In Seattle, I mean, they bloody, you know, they, they took over how many square blocks, right? And said, uh, law will not be enforced here. Literally insurrection. It's, it's text, literally textbook definition of insurrection in Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Right. And so you have people who are outraged by this, uh, but think the Capitol riot was like totally cool and everyone's overreacting. And then you have people who think the opposite. Right. Who were just kind of sleeping right through Chaz and like maybe thought it was quaint or cute or, you know, or like, hey, we've got some, you know, we've all got some kind of like anarchists, uh, maybe maybe communist stuff or like uh, fantasies inside of us. And you got these people sticking it to the cops and the cops weren't popular back in June and July, were they? So we're sticking it to the cops. And we're saying, oh, these cops who are all, you know, you know, you know what ACAB stands for. They can't operate in this area, which means law can't be enforced in this area. And that's that's kind of cool somehow. And, you know, attacking these public servants, these people with a job, these public servants um, or, you know, throwing stones at them or abusing them or, you know, running into hospitals after they've been shot and saying, we hope they die. All that stuff. Totally fine. Uh, but the Capitol riots suddenly, because it was, oh, it's the Trumpkins, right? We draw the line. And look, the Capitol riot was like super big deal. And don't get me wrong. Like these weren't the same, you know, a bunch of Congress people getting hurt and them and, and, and doing it in order to like, you know, doing it in order to like keep one guy who lost the election in office, like real bad juju here. But condemning that and then kind of sleeping through Chaz in Seattle and saying, hey, it's totally fine for a rando group of people to, you know, to just like through force, literally through force, because they didn't use force. The cops would have still been there. Right. You're not going to force the cops out with words. You're going to do it with force. So these people used force. in So so like, you know, look, we all like I think probably everyone listening to this agrees that the capital riots were like real bad juju. But in Seattle, they said there will be no law and order here. We're going to use force. To make sure of that, to drive the cops out. And what about some of the people who lived there? Did they have a say? Did they get did did someone check with everyone who lived in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or had a business in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone? Whether they were down with this. Right. And so, again, literally insurrection, because these people's rights can't be defended by the state, which is like the state's primary job. and. Why are we okay with one of these? Again, they're different, but they've got some parallels, don't they? One, for one, 
and the main parallel is that they're both insurrection. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone and the Capitol Riots. They're both literally insurrection. They're both literally people using force to deny the state's ability to enforce the law. One of them is of one of them has bigger repercussions for people, you know, with Chaz, the repercussions were only as big as the people who lived there. And for the Capitol riots, it's a uh, the repercussions of that actually succeeding in some way would have been just a truly history altering for the country. We dodged a bullet there. But like morally, how is one of these totally cool? and One of these not totally cool. Insurrection is a crime for a reason. Right. And um, as far as I can tell, Chaz didn't really have any clear purpose other than just being anarchy, which like, you know, it's Seattle. Um, what can you expect? You know, we even look at Portland where, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, there's still violent protests. There's still stuff getting set on fire. It's like, what are they even protesting anymore? What are they trying to accomplish? What is burning all this stuff down? How is that going to help? And how much of it is just burning stuff down? Right. But, oh, but, you know, it's Portland, very left wing. So it's cool. Or, you know, you're on the right wing and it's Portland. So send in the send in the jackbooted thugs and beat all these kids into into a pulp. Right. Because you, you can go on right wing Facebook back from when this was happening last July, which seems so long ago now. And, you know, they said, look, just send in the military, crack some skulls. Not they. Right. But. But people were saying it and the people who were saying it on these kind of right wing Facebook groups, they weren't getting other right wing people saying like, whoa, hey, let's go with due process here. Right. Due process, restraint. That wasn't happening. You know, it wasn't happening. Right. When the riots were going on in in, you know, the Twin Cities and in uh, New York. Right. You know that you didn't have conservatives on mass saying like, hey, now let's be restrained. It's just property. Right. You did have left wingers saying, look, it's just property. Right. No big deal. But. And so why these differences? Well, there's just different sides of the of the culture war. Right. One of them is the, you know, all this all this rioting, like, again, rioting, setting things on fire, destroying people's businesses, destroying their homes, things being destroyed, people's well-being getting hurt. Right. This was this was in the name of Black Lives Matter. So it's cool. Unless you're not on that side of the culture war. And if you're on the other side of the culture war, you've seen videos of hundreds of people just pouring into a Walmart or um, and just, you know, run out with TVs. Right. And saying, ah, yes, peaceful protests, not larceny on mass being being defended by the left. Right. Um, and you saw people's, you know, bodegas getting smashed, and destroyed and, you know, poor bodega owners cowering um, out of fear. Right of their well-being, of, the, of their physical well-being. No one should have to live like that, of course. But which one are you going to defend? You know, are you going to defend that or are you going to attack it? And when the capital riots came about, are you going to defend that or are you going to attack it? Well, it just depends on which side of the culture war you're on. Right. And maybe much like with immigration gentrification, we should be thinking about, hey, look, what are the forces going on here? What's the root cause of the problem? How do we help the most people? Right. Maybe we should think about a more systemic approach to or more, you know, a non-culturally culture war tainted approach to how do we deal with violent rioting at the moment 
right? In order to disperse it with the fewest number of people getting hurt. And then what should be the consequences for people rioting violently? And should, you know, hey, should uh, should the state get to decide whether your riot was politically acceptable, morally acceptable, right? Or, you know, should justice be blind, right? And should we just look at the facts of the case, be like, look, you burn this thing down. You're not allowed to burn things down. You go to jail. Deal with it. Right? Because if you're going to decide which riots are cool, which violence is okay, and which violence isn't okay, well, someone's got to decide it, and who do you elect to decide it? Right? Because if there's one thing we've learned since 2016, it's something that Xander and I have been talking about since a long time ago. Hey, all these powers that you're like totally fine with one person having, when they're out of office, the next person has those powers too. You can't give individuals power. You can only give roles power. And with prosecuting riots, you can't, you know, like you sitting there listening to this podcast and I talking in it can't decide like which rioter that burned stuff down and committed insurrection is cool and should avoid a long jail sentence. So violent disobedience, great example of where we seem to contradict ourselves because of, you know, the culture war we're fighting. Censorship, similarly, right? When is it, when is it we're being, you know, we have an authority figure, whether it's corporate or government, censoring the people? Uh, And when is it just good policy to avoid misinformation? Who gets to decide? Do you have a consistent, do you, dear listener, have a consistent perspective on this that applies equally to everyone? Or are you going to ask some, are you going to give someone the power to decide that your group is, you know, that hopefully your group doesn't get censored and, but the people who are, you know, the, the people on the other side who are spreading propaganda and misinformation, um, that they do, you know, that, that, that propaganda and misinformation can't be spread, right? Cause it's a problem. The last one I, I've actually heard recently is about poverty. It's really interesting. It actually ties back to the immigration bit where I remember a bunch of folks they were they were they happen to be liberals because I, I hang it, you know, I hang out with more liberals than conservatives. But I do have some conservative friends. They tend to they're in hiding, which is really interesting. Very well educated folks, conservative. I, I mean, I like astronomically well educated. I mean, like Ivy League plus. But they're in hiding about it because it's it would just be political suicide for them to come out and declare the conservative because they could be canceled or whatever just for you know being on the wrong side of the culture war. Because the left tends to be better at canceling for some reason than the right. Uh, I still don't know why, but they're very good at it. And the right is not very good at it. But anyway, this is about poverty. So, so a number of like kind of left-wing friends were sharing memes about how, well, look, if, if an illegal immigrant coming over the border with like no education and just, uh, you know, just the shirt on their back is going to take your job, like maybe you should have gotten more skills. It's like, boy, isn't that judgmental of someone in poverty, right? Like no sympathy at all. For this person who's in poverty, who's and who whose job might actually be taken away by illegal immigrants, right? Who are working under the table and stuff like that. Um, one thing we know from some, you know, you can go look at Wedged, which hopefully y'all have a copy by now. But it is the case that low skill immigration depresses wages for low skill employees in the United States. So it is there is a real economic impact for these people, but. 
you know, but in this like kind of group of progressives, like if you oppose illegal immigration or if you have a problem with illegal immigration because it economically impacts you, it's your fault. Right. If you can't make money, more money, it's your fault. Sounds a lot like Ben Shapiro saying, stop being poor, doesn't it? But when Ben Shapiro says it, was he talking to a different group of people? Maybe it's urban black poor rather than rural white poor. And Ben Shapiro saying it bad. You saying it to these uh, rural white folks who don't want more low skill immigration because it affects their lives. That's fine. And again, vice versa, vice versa. Right. All this vice versa happens. I just hang out with more more left wingers. So I see this more. But so we're even pretty happy to contradict ourselves on poverty. Right. When it's convenient for us. Right. What's you know, you, you see you see it every now and then people pick like. You know, they they can they see if they can tie their particular pet position into being an issue of uh, poverty or, you know, protecting the American poor or not. Right. Again, it's why in the 90s, the messaging, the messaging from the left uh, that wasn't, you know, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton was very third way. Right. He wasn't left wing. But why, like the kind of pro union messaging uh, on immigration was to not have it because it, you know, it drove down wages for American workers. But now the, you know, the position on the left is like, well, if these immigrants are going to hurt your job, maybe you should have gotten more educated too bad. Right. And so we're judging you for, for your poverty rather than, rather than trying to support you with policy. Um, And again, if you're on the right, it's, it's, you're happy to talk about poverty being a problem when it regards immigration and in particular legal immigration. Right. And and them kind of coming in and taking good Americans jobs. But um, when it comes to free trade policy, do you care how many jobs are being taken away from these Americans when it comes to, you know, you're you're fine with the market solving when it comes to labor supply. You're fine with having you're fine with not the market solving when it comes to labor supply. Right. You're fine with the government um, controlling the amount of labor supply that's in the market. But you're not fine with the government doing anything else to manipulate wage prices, such as instituting minimum wage, right? Because you say, oh, well, well, you know, free market, but wouldn't a free market have free labor flow? So, you know, are we running around being hypocrites constantly? Yes. Is this podcast episode going to change that? No, but I hope it does get you to think a little bit about where are you being a hypocrite and why? And do you want to be a hypocrite? Are you fine with just contradicting yourself? Is your goal even to be consistent? Or is your goal to fit into your tribe? Is your goal to, you know, kind of score political points that translate into social juice for you? Right? Because there are people, you know, you look on Twitter, they get a lot of social juice. Look on Facebook, they get a ton of social juice out of out of out of being the loudest and most aggressive to parrot whatever their tribes kind of uh like culture war issue du jour is, you know, whether it's Dr. Seuss or Mr. Potato Head or, or sorry, gender indeterminate potato head, right? Boy, what a dumb thing to get in a fight about for anyone, regardless of what side you're on. You know, if there's anything we've seen over the past four years and stuff like people politicizing, wearing a dang mask during a pandemic, it, What's what's clear is that a large number of Americans and it's not just the other side. Sorry to say. It's really not. But a large number of Americans for a large number of issues are 
just so much more interested, even to the detriment of their own well-being, so much more interested in fighting the culture war than they are having a sensible position that even helps them. So I hope that helps. That's my big reconsider moment. It's one big episode. That's a reconsider moment as we wrap up. So first intelligence speech, April 24th, go to intelligencespeechconference.com and get your ticket. I'll be there. I'll be talking as well as other people who are way cooler than me. You know, I, I will always say David Crowther who, who, you know, who I've got the biggest podcast crush on along with Robin Pierce, uh, also big podcast crush. So history of England, history of Byzantium, we'll both be speaking there. So I'll be, you know, look, I'll be attending um, when I'm not talking. And I, I hope we can have you there as well. Um, love to get, love to get your questions. Also, Patreon. So you're going to get an email from me, but it's at this point, it's, it's sort of like poop or get off the pot for reconsider and, and rather proverbially poop. and. It's mostly just because, look, the world has gotten so mad, so dramatically, wildly crazy that, you know, the thing we're thinking about here at Reconsider is whether we're going to have a meaningful impact or whether we're just, you know, talking to people who already agree with us. I mean, this is why this is why Dan Carlin shut down common sense, right? Are we even making an impact? Do we have a big enough audience that that we can help? And, and I'm actually unlike Dan Carlin, I'm fine with talking to people who agree with me. Because my hope is to arm them to be able to talk to other people around them, right? We're influencing the influencers. But we need to get to it. And so that means that, you know, I've been experimenting with spending some money on doing uh, better social media marketing. And it's working. We are actually growing quite quickly. So those of you who are new, welcome. You just got a lecture from me. But those of you who've been around for a bit, um, who've enjoyed our content, who believe in the mission, we need your support. Go to patreon.com slash reconsider. We need your support. I am going to be doing a fundraiser for everyone who is a patron. I'm going to host um, a big live, a big couple of live events, all TBD, but where we just have a chat and I want to be able to answer your questions and get a little bit more interactive, um, learn a little bit more about kind of what's on your mind, what you want to hear about, what you want to reconsider, spin on, answer some stuff live, and then turn some of that into content. But those of you who don't support yet, it's a bucket show um, or you can give more and that would mean a ton to us. Um, those of you who do support us already, you're amazing. If you're giving a dollar, it'd be great if it could be two. And uh, for those of you who still want to get their uh, signed copy of Wedged, now's a good time. You can tell your friends, hey, you know, this guy was talking about political polarization before it was cool. Back in 2014. Can you believe it? It's like a different age. Um, but I, we'd love your support. It means everything to us. Those of you who are wondering what's going on with Xander, uh, he is on a break. And when he comes back, I don't know. But like many people, he needs a breather after this year. So I'm holding down the fort. But Reconsider is not going anywhere. We're going to keep podcasting through all the chaos because even if we're just a little point of light in the darkness, I think it matters. But we need your help getting our message out and, and getting to a point of, of having like a sustainable level of uh, support and listeners and, um, and stuff like that so we can settle the grow. So patreon.com slash reconsider. Your support means the world. And with that... Don't let the pundits do the thingy for you. This is Eric, signing off. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.